Welcome to episode number 16 of the Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and I'm going to be your host today. We got back together after a summer hiatus, and we discussed two talks given by R.C. Sproul on the last days according to Jesus. Now, this is a this is a eschatology talk. We're talking about eschatology or the last things. But the bigger idea, the bigger thing that we're focusing on is finding commonality, common ground between different believing Christians in the Lewis County area so that we can, with the Lord's blessing, build a church here in Lewis County, the Centralia Chehalis area, that is distinctly reformed. Now, distinctly reformed doesn't mean everybody agrees on everything. That's why we're going through these Reformation Roundtable talks to find out where everybody's at. And one of the things that is there's a wide range of different thoughts and opinions and convictions is eschatology. So we're listening to this 12-part series by R.C. Sproul on the doctrine of eschatology, specifically as it relates to the words that Jesus used in describing and predicting, prophesying the end of the age. And so Dr. Sproul is going to be looking at two main ideas in today's teaching. The first is what does it mean by this generation? When Jesus says that this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place, what did he mean by that? And then finally, what did Jesus mean when he talked about the end of the age? The end of the world, if you read the King James Bible, or the end of the age, if you read other translations. I'm going to let Dr. Sproul teach all of that, but if you would like to join us in our quest to plant and build and nurture a Reformed church here in Lewis County, please reach out to me. All my information is here at lewiscounty.church. Hope you enjoy the teaching. In our study of the crisis of eschatology in our day, we have placed great emphasis on the criticisms that have been launched against the Bible and against the credibility of Jesus with respect to unfulfilled prophecies that Jesus, as well as the apostles, made with respect to the coming of Christ. And the critics have argued that Jesus' predicted coming did not occur within the time frame that the New Testament gives for the fulfillment of that event. And as we've seen so far in our study, the critical phrase in the Olivet Discourse is the reference to this generation, where it is said, this generation will not pass away, I'll use the phrase pass away, until all these things are fulfilled. Now, an ordinary prima facie understanding of this text, as Bertrand Russell made it in his critique of Christianity, as well as the higher critics in biblical scholarship, say that this generation must refer, literally, to that group of people who were the contemporaries of Jesus, and a generation lasts approximately 40 years, and that the pass away refers to their demise. That is, that this group of people uh, will not all die or pass away until everything in this prophecy 
comes to pass. The all these things is then thought to be all-inclusive. Now, we also see that the whole problem is exacerbated by our knowledge, as I've mentioned, that that which precipitated the whole discourse, Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, did in fact take place within the time frame of 40 years as these events unfolded in A.D. 70. So I think, again, we see and feel the weight of the problem. I, I labor this point for this reason. I'm not convinced that evangelical Christians really do feel the weight of this problem. And that's part of the problem of ignoring higher criticism and simply preaching to the choir and, and talking to among ourselves and not really listening to this criticism that is raised. And we have to give an answer to these critics uh, that have devastated uh, uh, Scripture and the person of Christ. And so I think it is our obligation as Christians who believe in uh, the deity of Christ and in the uh, inspiration of the Scriptures to feel the weight of this burden and to address it as we encounter it. Now, there are many scholars who feel that the escape hatch from all of this difficulty is found in verse 32 of Mark 13. Immediately following the time frame reference that Jesus gives, again in verse 30, he says, Assuredly, most certainly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Again, let me remind you that the statement that Jesus makes here is made in emphatic terms. I can't conceive of Jesus being any more emphatic about the time frame than he is here when he says, Assuredly, I say to you that this generation will by no means pass away until all of these things take place. And then he goes on to amplify that by saying, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So Jesus is hanging an awful lot of his own credibility on what he's saying here. These are my words, and my words will last longer than the heaven and the earth. So, then we hear the escape hatch in verse 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now that verse, 32, is one of the most controversial verses in all of Mark's gospel, because, among other things, it's a verse in which Jesus puts a limit on his own knowledge when he said that the day and the hour knows nobody, not even the angels, not even the Son, just the Father. And that's provoked all kinds of Christological debate, but obviously Jesus is referring here to his human nature, and the human nature is not omniscient. It would be heretical to assert that the human nature of Christ knew everything. The divine nature did, of course, but the human nature knows only what a nor normal, ordinary human being could know, or a human who is informed 
by the divine. I mean, there are times when there is knowledge communicated from the divine nature to the human nature. We're not separating them, but we are distinguishing them. But I don't want to get carried away on that. That's a Christological issue. <clears throat> but with respect to this problem that we're dealing with, many scholars come to verse 32 and they say, obviously Jesus here is qualifying his prediction by saying, after all, Nobody really knows the day and the hour, including me. So, in a sense, Jesus has a get-out-of-jail-free card here for being wrong about stating that it would all take place within the time frame of this generation. And so, since he has this disclaimer that nullifies or uh, reduces the import of his previous statement that it would come in this generation. Well, I think this is another one of those examples of where a text is problematic. Sometimes scholars use tortuous devices to try to solve the problem. There's no reason to see that verse 32 would nullify Jesus' broader statement earlier when he says simply, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. And then he qualifies it by saying what? I don't know what day in this generation. I don't know what hour it will be, but I do know this. It's going to be within the time frame of this generation. That sometime within this generation, before this generation passes away, all these things will come to pass, but don't ask me for the day and the hour. That would seem to be a much more sober understanding of what Jesus is saying here, and we don't want our Lord to put them on and take them off, as it were, to assert that it's going to happen within a time frame with his left hand, and five minutes later, less than five minutes later, say, well, it's not going to happen in that time frame. Once he's made the statement as emphatically as he had that it will take place most definitely, most assuredly, within the time frame of a generation, we have to live with that. And we have to say, okay, what does he mean by generation? And what does he mean that this generation will not pass away? Again, the critics, including Bertrand Russell, understand the phrase, this generation, to refer to a group of people who were the contemporaries of Jesus, those people who were alive at that time, uh, uh, referring to an age group of human beings. So, when uh, Jesus qualifies it, as it were, in verse 32, uh, he is saying, I can't be any more specific than it'll be this generation but keep this in mind, that does not mean that he's any less specific than it would be within the time frame of that generation. Now, again, this business of passing away, we're assuming that it refers to the death of those who are alive. Now, that is consistent with the other time frame reference that Bertrand Russell used to refute the New Testament and to refute Jesus, when Jesus said, some of you will not taste death until you see uh, the Son of Man coming in power and so on. 
Now there, the passing away becomes taste death. So there's a consistency here that we're talking about that some people are going to survive long enough to see certain events that Jesus predicted fulfilled. What else can he mean when he says some of you will not taste death? Now, again, in an effort to deal with that problem yeah, that's uh, found in Matthew 16, we are told by uh, certain scholars that that was fulfilled in either the transfiguration or the resurrection. Because in the transfiguration, people did see Jesus manifested in glory. Because on the Mount of Transfiguration, his divine nature shone through, and the disciples, the, Peter, James, and John, had that awe-inspiring encounter there with the transfigured Jesus where they beheld his glory. And so maybe what Jesus was referring to was either to the manifestation of his glory in the transfiguration or the manifestation of his glory in resurrection or ascension, not to his coming later. Now, there's a problem with that, and that is that the transfiguration, according to Matthew, took place six days after Jesus gave that time frame reference. And the resurrection, only a couple of weeks, and so on. So it doesn't seem very reasonable to me for Jesus to say, some of you aren't going to die until this takes place, unless he was expecting uh, the majority of his disciples to die in the following week. And when he was simply saying, some of you are going to survive long enough to see this come to pass. It just doesn't seem likely to me that our Lord would, would say, would speak in terms of surviving death in an event that's going to take place in the next week or the next couple of weeks, unless, of course, they were faced with an impending uh, battle where survival was not expected or something of that sort, which we obviously don't have at this point. So my point is this, that to apply that text of some of you will not taste death to the, uh, uh, to the transfiguration or to these other events related to it in the short term, I think it's too near a time. I think Jesus, when he says that some of you will not taste death, is obviously thinking longer term than one week or a month or so. Well, now another way, in fact, the most common way in which scholars try to answer the critics with respect to the unfulfilled prophecy of the New Testament and of Jesus is by interpreting the word generation in a way that does not make it refer to that group of people who were alive at the time Jesus made the prophecy and who were the contemporaries of Christ. But rather, the term generation is used to describe a kind, type, or sort. A kind, a type, or a sort of person. That's like Jesus is saying, people like this will not pass away 
until all of these things come to pass. Now again, that's the most common. Now, some scholars say that the type of person that Jesus is describing here is the believer or the righteous ones. That some of you who are faithful and believing and trusting in me will not pass away until all of these things will be fulfilled. In other words, there will be believers still around whenever I return at the end of the age. That's one of the interpretations. And of course, that interpretation gets everybody off the hook because then generation doesn't refer to a 40-year period and restrict the fulfillment to the first century and allows for the possibility of what Schweitzer called parousia, delay, down through the centuries that we can wait 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years for these things to take place. Now, more commonly, the generation that is described as a type or a sort of people refers not to the righteous or to believers, but to unbelievers, those who were of a wicked sort, a wicked generation. And Herman Ritterboss, whom I've already talked about, who gave us the already and not yet time frame approach to the kingdom of God teachings in the New Testament, Ritterboss takes the view that the Greek word here, ganea, that is used to interpret or to be translated generation, is a description not of time frame, but of mind frame. That is, it's a mind frame reference saying people of this frame of mind will still be around until all of these things come to pass. Again, this ilk, this sort, this type of person will abide until all of these things are fulfilled. Now, Again, that is the most common view that conservatives and evangelicals take to the Olivet Discourse to escape the guns of higher criticism. And I personally, frankly, find this less than exegetically satisfying. Now, I do know that there are rare occasions in the Septuagint and in extra-biblical documents where that or that word, ganea, can be used to refer to sort or kind or type of person. But the usage of it in the New Testament overwhelmingly and consistently refers to a group of people who are alive at the particular time. And I want to take some time now to look at some of these passages. And the first passage we look at is in Matthew 23, verse 36. Now, in this context, Jesus is giving his final address that he gives presumably on the very same day that he gives the Olivet Discourse. And he said, quote, All of these things shall come upon this generation. Now, to my understanding, I'm not aware of any commentator 
or any Mathean scholar who's ever interpreted that reference to anything other than those contemporaries that were alive at the time when Jesus talks about the things that will befall that generation. In Matthew 11, he says, Whereunto shall I liken this generation? Again, the commentators all agree that that referred to the existing generation of Jewish people. In, in uh, Matthew 12, 39, 41, 42, and 45, listen to what we read. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation. Obviously, the men of Nineveh was an earlier, were an earlier generation. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. And this can only refer to the then current existing generation of people that Jesus was warning. Again, Luke 11, verses 50 and 51. That the blood of all the prophets may be required of this generation. Again, it shall be required of this generation. Mark 8, 38. Whoever shall be ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation. And Luke 17, 25. The Son of Man must be rejected of this generation. Now, if we understand the biblical context in which our Lord makes these statements, he's clearly talking about the decisive point in redemptive history where God has visited the nation of Israel in the person of his only begotten Son. And it was that generation that was alive at that time that had on the one hand the unspeakable privilege of seeing the Messiah come in the flesh. And yet at the same time, it was that generation who were convicted of the greatest guilt in Jewish history because that was that generation that rejected the one who had come to their own and they received him not. And so Jesus again and again in the New Testament warns that existing generation about the severity of judgment that will be on their heads because their judgment will be far greater than those earlier generations in antiquity, such as were seen in the days of the Queen of Sheba and, and other periods, because the decisive crisis point has been reached with the coming of the Messiah. And he talks about the judgment that will come upon this generation. And the plain sense of those warnings refers to the judgment that will befall that last, final generation of apostate Israel at that time. In fact, apart from the use of this word genea, or generation, that we find in the Olivet Discourse, there are 38 other references to this word in the New Testament, and every one of them refers to a contemporary group of people that were then alive. Now, it's possible linguistically 
that Ganea could mean sort or type, or as Ritterboss suggests, a mind frame rather than a time frame. But what I'm saying to you is that the exegetical and linguistic evidence against that is overwhelming. And one would have to have a compelling reason to interpret the phrase, this generation shall not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. There have to be a compelling reason to interpret that other than the ordinary usage of the term. And the question is, do we have that compelling reason? Well, of course we have a compelling reason, according to uh, many evangelical people. And the compelling reason is, the end of the age hasn't happened, Jesus hasn't come. <laughs> so, obviously, if Jesus is telling the truth, then we have to interpret Ganea in a way other than the ordinary sense in which it is used in the New Testament. But, what if the end of the age has come? What if what Jesus is talking about here is not the end of history, but the end of the Jewish age? What if Jesus is talking about not his final consummate coming to fulfill all prophecy about the final uh, renovation of heaven and earth, but what he's talking about is his coming of judgment on Israel, which is manifested in the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. What if that's the focal point of his warning on the Mount of Olives? I believe it is. I'm not positive, but I, am, I do believe that that's what he was talking about there. And in our next session, we'll look further at the reasons for that. As we continue now with our study of the crisis in eschatology, the point I want to look at in this session is this question. When Jesus spoke about his coming at the end of the age, did he mean by that phrase, the end of the age, the end of world history? Or was he talking more specifically about the end of the Jewish age? That's one of the critical points that uh, are in dispute here with respect to the time frame references of New Testament eschatology. I'd like to read a portion of the text of Matthew for you from a, uh, the New King James Bible or the New King James Translation, where we read in chapter 13, verse 38, Jesus' interpretation of the parable of the tares. He says, and I quote, The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. Now, the reason I read from the New King James is that it reads differently from the original King James. And now if you'll follow with me for a moment. I'll read from the original King James. In verse 38, we read, The field is the world. That's exactly the way the new King James renders it. 
The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Verse 40, As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. Now notice in verse 38, 39, and 40, three times the Old King James Version translated uh, the words of Jesus by using the English word world. In the New King James, world is used in verse 38, but in verses 39 and 40, the word age is used instead of world. Now, why is that? Why the change? Well, the simple reason for the change is that there are two different Greek words in the New Testament text that are being translated here. In verse 38, the Greek word is the word cosmos, which is the common word used to describe the world. We talk about cosmic events and so on. That's the Greek word cosmos. Then in verses 39 and 40, we have the Greek word ion, which means age or epoch, not world. Now, I can only guess as to why the original translators of the King James Version translated the Greek word ion by the word world rather than age. My guess is that they assumed, as many have assumed, that when Jesus was talking about the end of the age, he meant the end of the human age, the end of world history. And so translators indicated that in the rendering of the text. But frankly, they shouldn't have done that because of the difference in the Greek words, and the new King James has corrected that uh, somewhat loose translation of, uh, of the original. But that still doesn't solve our problem because the term end of the age could refer, of course, to the end of the human age. It refers to the end of some time period, the end of some epoch. Now again, the question is whether it's the end of history as we know it, or is it more particular and definitive with reference to the Jewish age? Well, again, we have to ask the question, to assume the possibility of a distinction between the Jewish age and the human age, uh, we could be open to the charge of just being engaged in unbridled speculation and uh, creating out of thin air a distinction that the Bible is ignorant of. Now, in order for that not to be the case, I think it would be important for us to find in Scripture some reference to the use of this term age that is more particular and more distinctive than to the general concept of the age of human beings or of world history. Now, <clears throat> when we look at Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, which is found in the 21st chapter of, of his gospel, and I'll turn your attention to that now, we have some details in Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse 
that are not found in either Matthew's version in Matthew 24 or in Mark's version in Mark 13. And the passage that is most uh, interesting for us in this uh, context, I will uh, read to you uh, beginning at uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. Now remember, I mentioned that uh, early on in this series, that this was contrary advice to what was the universally accepted uh, plan of survival in the case of a military assault or a siege uh, that people would immediately go to the strongest fortified city for their safety and security. And one of the reasons why Josephus tells us that 1.1 million people were killed in the destruction of Jerusalem is that because after the armies of Rome invaded and crossed the borders of Palestine and the word was passed on through the villages and towns, people from all over fled to Jerusalem for safety. But the Christians didn't because Jesus here clearly gives the warning not to do that. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. Let not those who are in the country enter her, for these are the days of vengeance. Whose vengeance? The vengeance of God is being poured out now upon Jerusalem. These are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and those to who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. Again, this is one of the most remarkable future predictions that we find in any surviving literature of any type from any place at any time. One person said, give me one argument for the truth of Christianity. And the answer was the Jews. That the Jewish people have maintained their identity, their ethnic origins, without a homeland for 2,000 years. And they gather on a regular occasion and will say to each other, next year in Jerusalem. I'm of Irish descent. When I was a kid, my parents let me stay home from school on St. Patrick's Day because the radio, popular radio, featured Irish songs all day. My mother sang Irish lullabies to me when I was an infant, when I would go to bed at night, and I grew up memorizing all these things. But as much as they tried to preserve our Irish heritage for two or three generations, we didn't meet around the table saying next year in Dublin. I'm an American. I don't really think of myself as being Irish anymore. But the Jews, despite the loss of their country and their cent center of worship, were dispersed throughout the whole world and never lost their identity. That is unheard of in world history. But it was predicted, that is, the dispersion of the Jews, is predicted by Jesus right here when he said, 
<clears throat> they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. Now here is the critical verse. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now here, Jesus doesn't talk about the Jewish age or the Gentile age. He doesn't use that language. But he speaks about this strange phrase, the times of the Gentiles. Now, simple, elementary deduction. What times of the Gentiles would be distinguished from what other times? Obviously, the Gentiles here is, uh, is a word, the term Gentiles is a word that is used to differentiate Gentiles from, from Jews. And if there are times of the Gentiles, there presumably were former, what, times of the Jews. And so we have a specific interim period in history that is called the times of the Gentiles. Now, I said earlier that there are those who are called full preterists who believe that not only the elements of the Olivet Discourse were fulfilled in the first century, but all of the New Testament uh, prophecies with respect to the future have already taken place, including the final coming of Christ, the great resurrection, the rapture, and all the rest. I don't believe that. But uh, those people who take the position that everything has already been fulfilled in the first century uh, have a problem with this phrase of the times of the Gentiles. And so they include it as a tiny little interim uh, right before the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, say between 69 and 70 A.D., where the Gentiles uh, had a little uh, uh, thing going on in Jerusalem at the time that Josephus tells us about, but I'll skip over that now. When Luke talks about Jerusalem's being trodden underfoot by the Gentiles, until, the word there that is translated until, refers clearly to a terminal point. And that terminal point is the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles. That is to say, Jerusalem will be controlled by Gentiles for a definite period of history, but there will come a time when that will end. And that ending will coincide with the ending of the times of the Gentiles. Am I making myself clear here? That there is a period in history beginning in 70 A.D., where Jerusalem is destroyed, the Jews are dispersed, and this following is time is the times of the Gentiles. But that doesn't go on forever. There is a time when that will be fulfilled. And presumably, that fulfillment will be related to the end 
of the trampling of Jerusalem underfoot by the Gentiles. Now, just as a matter of parenthesis at this point, let me remind you that what transpired in 1948 with the, the recreation of the Jewish state, the state of Israel, after almost 2,000 years, and perhaps even more significantly, the recovery of the city of Jerusalem from the control of the Gentiles in 1967 with the Seven-Day War, or the Six-Day War, however many days it was, in any case, those two events have triggered perhaps more eschatological speculation than any two events in the last 500 years because uh, of people who are looking for the restoration of the nation of Israel as a supreme sign of the end times. Now, that relates to what kind of position you have on the millennium, and I'll go into that later. But I can remember in 1967 watching the Jewish soldiers fighting their way into the center of Jerusalem with their machine guns, and when they got to the Wailing Wall, they threw their guns down and forgot about the firefight and went right over to the, the Wailing Wall and started praying and, and carrying on. And I remember going to an Old Testament scholar that night and said, well, what do you, what do, you do with this? He says, well, I don't know what to do with this. He says, but this is, this is interesting. That's when Karl Barth said people started reading the Bible in one hand and uh, their newspapers in the other hand. Now, but this is an obscure passage here, and it's the only time in all of it this course of, of the three synoptic Gospels that any mention is made about the times of the Gentiles. But we do have another reference to the times of the Gentiles that's found not in the Olivet Discourse, but in one of the most important didactic chapters with respect to uh, uh, future uh, expectation in the writings of Paul in Romans chapter 11, where Paul talks about the church being grafted into the original tree or the stump of Israel and that we who are Gentiles or the Johnny-come-latelys, we have been engrafted into the historic people of God who uh, were, of course, the nation Israel. And Paul says in verse 25 of Romans 11, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, again, there's a lot of controversy in interpreting Romans 11. Some believe that Paul, here, when he speaks of Israel, is not describing ethnic Israel. He's not talking about Jewish people. He's talking about the new Israel, the Christian church. Now, I don't hold the view that God has two views and two plans of redemption, one for Israel and one for the church. I don't believe that for a minute. And I do believe that the church in the New Testament is the fulfillment of the covenant people of God known as Israel in the Old Testament. And so I don't divide those two. However, that does not mean that all ethnic distinctions are eliminated. 
And that Paul here, I believe, in Romans 11, when he just talks about Israel and in the same breath talks about Gentiles, he can only be distinguishing on the basis of ethnicity. So I believe that the apostle is saying here in chapter 11 that God is not done with Jewish people. That there is still another chapter of history that we await where God will once again deal with his people of ethnic origin of Israel. Again, he says, let me read it again. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, that is, the Jews. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So I hear Paul in Romans 11 talking about a future redemptive action with respect to his covenant people, uh, the Jews. Now, in any case, the most important point here is that for the second time we see this phrase in the New Testament, the times of the Gentiles. And if there's any doubt about what it is distinguished from in Luke, there is no doubt about it in Romans, that the times of the Gentiles is a time frame that is distinguished from the times of the Jewish people. And he talks, even as Luke does, of the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. Now, somebody might want to ask me, well, if that's the case, and if Luke is saying that Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, and it's no longer trodden underfoot, doesn't that mean that the times of the Gentiles are over and uh, we should be at the end? Well, not necessarily, because for one, place, for one thing, though the Jews conquered Jerusalem, they still have much of it that is in the control of, uh, of Gentiles, and the Jews don't have complete uh, domination over the city of Jerusalem. They're sharing it. It's still, in a certain sense, being under foot of Gentiles. So I don't know what that means, whether the Jews will be expelled from Jerusalem tomorrow and we wait another 3,000 years before the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Uh, I doubt that. It certainly does give one reason to pause and say, are we on the brink of some great significant redemptive historical event? Now again, the temptation in every generation is to think that because we all desperately want to see the final consummation of the kingdom of Christ. And, uh, and, and every generation should be diligent and vigilant and have that hope burning in their breast. But for now, I'm just trying to say that if the age of the Gentiles begins in, when we know that the times of the Gentiles begin in 70 AD, if that's the case, would it not follow logically that the times of the Jews, or the Jewish age, ended in 70 A.D. It was the end of the Jewish age, the beginning of the Gentile epoch, if you will. So that again, the time frame fits year 70, rather than being opposed to it. Now, quickly, before our time is up, I want to uh, 
give some references of other time frame references that are not by any means exhaustive, but uh, that refer to the nearness expectancy of the last days according to uh, the writers of the scriptures. In Matthew 10, 12 will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Matthew 26, he spoke, Jesus was speaking to the high priest. He said, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, for uh, chapter 13, now it is high time to wake out of sleep. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. 1 Corinthians 7, the form of this world is passing away. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, critical passage. The ends of the ages have come upon us. Philippians 4, 5, the Lord is at hand. In the general epistles, James 5, 8 to 9, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. 1 John 2, 18, it's the last hour. We know that it is the last hour, and in the book of Revelation, which we'll look at separately, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ with respect to things which must shortly take place. 1, 3, the time is near. 3, 11, behold, I come quickly. Chapter 22, verses 6 and 7, uh, God's angel shows his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly, and so on. We have a list of reference after reference after reference in the New Testament that calls to the critical situation that the world was in in the first century with respect to the day of the Lord, which was the day of vengeance, of God's visitation of wrath that was tied to some kind of coming of Jesus. Now, what I'm going to suggest to you is that that coming that is described in these passages is not the final coming of Jesus, but it is his judgment coming on Israel. The judgment coming of Christ on Israel. And in our next session, I want to look at some fascinating things that are recorded by the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, in which he gives us an eyewitness account, an eyewitness account of the siege and of the destruction of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem. It seemed like in those two talks, he had one main point, and that is to kind of push us out of the the kind of the natural default that most evangelical Christians fall into, which is the idea that all the prophecy in the New Testament is yet to come. Mm -hmm. Pushing us out of that thought and like mm -hmm. opening, opening up our minds to the idea that could it be that some of this has taken place? Not all of it. There's still things to, still things to come. But could it be that some of it has happened already? So in hearing you talk about a preterist view before, I had always grown up with a view that all these things hadn't taken place, and, um, and I'll admit that I hadn't taken a lot of interest in studying it very deeply. And then talking to you one evening, and you kind of were expressing your views on it, and uh, the fact that like, the fall of the temple in 70 AD, fall of the Jewish age, what he was just talking about. Um, having that just kind of in the back of my mind and in reading other passages, there's been times I thought, hmm, that makes way more sense now. Right. And it does, you know, and, and even him talking about, like, is it, it doesn't make sense that maybe Jesus was using, you know, he was talking about other people's ideas of what Jesus was saying by the end of the age. 
And I have a hard time not thinking that why would he not be speaking in the common, understandable by everybody in the room usage of that word? He's not speaking in veiled mysteries and, you know, he's not being weird about it. He's just saying what he's saying. And I think it makes, when, when, you, when you think about it like that, mm-hmm. that view makes total sense. Like this is going to happen soon mm-hmm. and some of you will still be alive, some of you won't be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes a lot of these other scriptures he's mentioning make sense to me. Mm. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my, uh, I have a study Bible here, the CSB study Bible. And they're t- I'm in the introduction to Revelation. They talk, they go through the schools, futurism and all that. And under preterism, <clears throat> The comment it says, full preterism, which insists that every prophecy and promise in the New Testament was fulfilled by AD 70, is not a legitimate evangelical option. For it denies Jesus' future bodily return, denies the physical resurrection of believers at the end of history, and denies the physical renewal slash recreation of the present heavens and earth, or their replacement by a new heaven and earth. However, preterists, who rightly insist that these events are still future are called partial preterists. And that kind of makes sense to me. It, it's kind of... I'm always reluctant to use the word resonate, mm-hmm. you know, when, yeah. when we talk about Scripture, because it it, it kind of, to me, it kind of leans to spiritual versus mm-hmm. uh, being more, you know, exegetical and, yeah. and context, you know, what's the context and all that. But that... that Kind of what he's saying, yeah. and then looking at that, I, you know, I'm. That sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. Actually, it makes sense to me. Right. And you know, like Spencer was saying, Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking plainly. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, there's no, uh, there's no double talk or double speak. And you know, I don't think God has has left us to be confused mm. and, and and wandering in that kind of that aspect of things. So. Yeah, if he's trying to confuse anyone, it's the wicked. Mm-hmm. He, he stops up the ears so that they won't hear with their ears right. and, and understand with their hearts. And if, he, if, if he's trying to confuse anybody, it's them. Mm-hmm. It's not his people. Um, and the time sense, the sense of urgency is very, very present. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that he'll talk about this when he looks at Revelation, but there is a portion of Revelation that uh, basically, uh, at the very beginning, it says, um, don't seal up the words of the prophecy for the times at hand. Which, for the partial predator's viewpoint, that makes sense. We think the time is at hand, it's coming. Mm-hmm. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is told, seal up, you know, he's talking about the coming of Christ, mm-hmm. the prophecy of the coming of Christ, and the Spirit tells him, seal up the seal up this prophecy because the time is not at hand. And in the time elapsed from the prophecy of Daniel until the coming of Christ was only a few hundred years, not Mm -hmm. even a couple thousand like for us. So on one hand, when it's 400 years off, he says the time is not at hand, seal it up. In Revelation, he's saying the time is at hand, don't seal it up. And now we're 2,000 years later and nothing's taken place. It, once again, you know, it's not just what does scripture mean to me. That's yeah. you know, that, that what I what I think it means is is irrelevant. What the Holy Spirit is revealing it to mean, and what we're trying to understand here is what does God mean here. Mm-hmm. 
it seems from our human understanding that the time was more immediate than mm-hmm. than our generation. Right? Mm-hmm. I was interesting the passage he was reading in. I think it was in Mark where that comparison of the New King James versus the King James, where the King James said world, end of the world, and the New King James said end of the age. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I looked at the, the reference in my King James here, and it, it shot me over here to Hebrews. Um, and I thought this was very interesting because it kind of applied to what he was talking about. It says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin into salvation. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that it's something like the, it says that he offered himself at the end of the world, mm-hmm. is the word it used there, right. which coincides with what he was talking about, the end of the world being about the time he died. Right. Um, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great connection. I've never and that's, uh, that's Hebrews chapter 9. I started reading in verse 24, I believe. Yeah, that's really good. One of the connections that he made, uh, let's see, I lost, oh yeah, uh, in Luke chapter 11, he's talking, this is in his first talk when he's talking about that phrase generation, Um, and you know, you look through the New Testament, who's persecuting Christ? Mm -hmm. It's only the Jews, Mm -hmm. nobody else. And then you look in the book of Acts, who's persecuting the church? It's only the Jews. It's never the Gentiles. It's In fact, the Gentiles, the Romans, are oftentimes protecting the church mm-hmm. from the relentless assault on mm-hmm. the church of the Jews. And so it's, it's, the New Testament is really a history of Jewish persecution, but not of Jews being persecuted, of them persecuting God's, God's chosen people. You know, there's some, there's some irony there. Um, but in... Verse 49 of uh, Luke 11 says, Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they, the Jews, shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. And, you know, there could be some Gentiles in that mix, but this is largely a history of the Jews, of, the, of Jewish persecution. Yes, there's all sorts of stories of wicked Gentiles all throughout the Old Testament, and they were usually dealt with swiftly and justly. Um, but at this point, the, the, um, the patience of God has now kind of come to an end, and he's, uh, he's saying no more. And, and in 70 AD, Jesus comes again, in judgment, not bodily. It was not a bodily resurrection, or it was not a bodily coming in form, but he came um, in, in judgment with a sword coming out of his mouth, which is definite symbolic, mm-hmm. you know, it's a symbolic mm-hmm. picture. Um, and it, I was even thinking about how the Apostles' Creed talks about how Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. 
which is sort of true. <laughs> I mean, it's true, it's 100% true, but he suffered under the Jews, mm -hmm. and Pontius Pilate really had no interest in crucifying him, but he was a coward, and so he did for, mm -hmm. for, for eternity, well, though he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Mm -hmm. But it was really the Jews that did all of this, and Jesus even tells a parable that is said, you know, he tells the parable of the, of the, vi of the, um, of the vineyard in the, in the uh, entrusting it to keepers. Mm -hmm. And at the time is at hand, he sends servants and mm -hmm. they kill him and, you know, treat him shamefully. Then finally he sends his son. And, what's the, and after they kill his son, what's the next thing that happens? The, the, the master of the vineyard comes and destroys them all. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's like the next thing that happens. And mm -hmm. so he was, that was, I believe that was a parable of what the judgment that was. Coming. Well, and he referred to it as the time of vengeance. Is that He's saying that God is pouring out vengeance on the Jews for their treatment of his son, yeah. essentially, which Mike said matches up with that parable. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and, and uh, the sheep of Christ hear his voice, and Jesus is saying, flee when this comes. Mm -hmm. So who flees? It's not the Jews. And now the, the, actually the Jews in the Colette are congregating mm -hmm. in that place. It, uh, there's no accident going right. on here. It's not, not a fluke or right. a coincidence. I mean, the Lord knew what he was saying. Yeah. And I never quite understood that passage and mm -hmm. RC really opened it up for me. Really. Yeah. Yeah. I always think it's interesting. Um, we live in an area where there's not a lot of Jewish people, but, um, the other day I was at a store and saw a gentleman um, who had, I mean, he was clearly of that descent and he was just physically looking, but he had the side curls, mm. the yarmulke, he had the tassels. I mean, he was like Hasidic. Yeah, Hasidic, Hasidic Jew. And I just, I was, I thought, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's crazy to think like he's one of God's chosen people. I like, guess kind of an interesting thought. Because, um, you know, like you talked about, some people sort of think that that's sort of been done away with, but there's very a clear distinction between the chosen people of God and then the Gentiles who've been grafted in. But I've always, I think it's interesting when you see Jewish people and you think about those are God's chosen people. Hmm. It's interesting. So you think that that guy, but he was a Christian. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like, but he's a descendant of the chosen people of God, ethnically speaking. Hmm. Obviously not. He's not, you know, born again. He's not, hmm. you know. Hmm. I'm just saying that. I think, I just think it's interesting you know, how much they've dispersed. You do mm -hmm. see Jewish people yeah. out and about. And, you know, and I know other people of descent that are, you know, that yeah, are I just talked, that can't heritage. Remember what, I just talked to somebody who was really lamenting uh, a member of his family who abandoned the Christian faith and mm -hmm. joined the Jewish. Mm -hmm. He was really... As a Messianic Jew? Like no, a oh, like, as a Jew. As like a Jesus is not Messiah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, he was very stricken about that, I understand. Right. I saw an interesting uh, video a while back of some group that they were uh, missionaries to um, Jews in Israel. And uh, this guy was talking, I can't what chapter of Isaiah it is where um, the Messiah is um, described. And he was going over that passage with these people mm -hmm. um, from a Jewish Bible. And... Uh, talking to them about it and he said you know like can you think of anybody in history who's maybe met this um, and, he, and he was explaining you know how the time frame fit up with the fall of the temple and some other things and he says is there anybody who like before the fall of the temple who matches this description that we're reading here and, and some of them are like oh no I can't think of anybody but a couple of them are like Yeshua Yeshua makes you know matches that pretty and even talking because even that passage yeah. it talks about the Jews will reject him and um, the one guy 
He says, it's crazy to me that I feel like that was almost hidden from me, that I never made that connection before. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's funny because that kind of matches up with what's said about how it's, yeah. they're I, blinded I've, to it. I've heard that they, they kind of dance around portions of Isaiah in the synagogue mm-hmm. or whatever. Because, he talked because about that of, in the beginning of, of that, that film, yeah. You know, it's like, you know, we're going to stay away from Isaiah 9 and 11 and 53. We're going to mm-hmm. kind of just kind of gloss over them or whatever yeah. because it's expedient or it's convenient or we really don't want to... Uh, At the beginning of that yeah. film, that guy mentioned, he said a lot of times Jews will, or Jewish churches will skip over these chapters mm-hmm. of Isaiah because yeah. sometimes they're problematic yeah. for people. Hmm. But at the same time, it's I, I've heard... Jews talk about how they just don't ever read the scripture. Well, that and so, and so, <laughs> so they're entirely dependent upon if they go to uh, if they go to their rabbi, mm-hmm. the rabbi is mm-hmm. teaching it or not. So I mean, it's just kind of like if they're not reading it, then they're never going to hear it. So you could actually witness to a modern Jew, and he's never heard of Isaiah fifty three, and he's like, "Whoa, that's in the, yeah, that's in Isaiah." Yeah, like, right. oh, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, even as Christians, if we're not if we're not reading this, yeah. I mean, you can go to church all the time and miss out on a lot of doctrine if you're not mm-hmm. in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to push back a little bit, if I can, on the idea that the Jews are God's chosen people because I I'm not sure I'm convinced that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, at least not from the standpoint of I certainly believe that they were. But you mm-hmm. know, Romans 11 clearly says that they've been removed from mm-hmm. the tree of from God's from God's tree from mm-hmm. the one from the one root. Um, and he says that there will be a day that they'll be grafted back in, mm-hmm. but not. I don't believe he's saying that they're going to be. And, and this is interesting because RC raised some really good questions for me to work through in my own mind. This this idea of the time of the Gentiles. What exactly that means? Does that mean that the time of the Jews comes to an end, the time of the Gentiles starts, and then there's another time of the Jews? I don't think so. I think that the t- the end of the age of the Gentiles. In my, without looking into it beyond this, I would say is at the end of that is the new heavens and the new earth. Mm-hmm. The end of the age of the Gen- yeah. Gentiles uh, kicks off the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and so Jews become God's chosen people again the same way you know, Chinese people do or American people do or, mm-hmm. or Africans do by Christ, by coming yeah. to yeah. the cross. What, what are you thinking, Ron? But Paul says that the blindness of the Jews was a blessing to the Gentiles. What will follow with their acceptance of Jesus? And it doesn't sound like the end of the age to me. Mm, that's good. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Well, and even R.C. sort of mentioned like that we're grafted into the stump of what's left, basically, of the Jews. Um, and I, I think I, I see what you're saying that, and I and I agree with you because, and even RC mentioned this too. No one, I mean, Jesus Himself said, "No one comes to the Father but through Me." Obviously, the Jews have to go through Christ. That's their only, their only method of salvation. Because for however long mm-hmm. they were worshiping the way they were worshiping, even Paul says it, it proves to be for naught. Because all the law does is show us that we're unable to fulfill it, <laughs> desperately so. Ron, what do you think about the idea of, uh, and you speculate a little bit here, because, because I'm, oh, I, I, know, I know exactly the part that you're talking about there, and it's, a really good, it's a really good counterpoint. Um, when, when, when we hear about there being rejoicing in heaven at the repentance of one sinner, you know, like the woman who finds the lost coin, um, I don't appreciate that 
very much. I, you know, I think, well, there's a lot of people. People are becoming Christians all the time, and how could there really be rejoicing over every individual person? You know, I know it's true, but I like I don't really understand the gravity of that. And the idea of the the Jewish people who are, um, you know, mostly, uh, I think I I think I've mentioned this before, but like. Um, Tel Aviv, Israel. Tel Aviv in Israel is is the most pro homosexual place on the planet. It's got the biggest gay pride parade. It's there's all there's just massive amounts of debauchery that, that happens within the within the borders of, of modern day Israel and and the Israel of today is nothing like the Israel of Jesus' time. In that the age has been they've, they've been dispersed and it's it's not the same it's not the same Israel any longer. And so, when they repent, like we all are repenting, like all nations are going to eventually repent, couldn't it be said that that is kind of, if, if the Jews will repent, then everybody else must have repented? Like, that's kind of like the crowning achievement because they were the last holdout, so to speak? I, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of speculating a little bit there, but... Look of that scripture again and see what Paul says about that. Right. Uh, something that's bothered me about Israel in 1947 for years is if you look at, at scripture in the, in the judgment and the, in the judge era after the nation was founded but not before the kings came along. They would be disobedient. Their neighbors would come in and conquer them. They'd be enslaved. And they would pray and repent, and God would deliver them. You come to 1947, I have not ever seen or heard anything that sounded to me like repentance on the part mm -hmm. of the nation. Mm -hmm. And so I don't put that much stock in 1947, mm -hmm. quite mm -hmm. frankly. I haven't really thought that much about 1967. Uh, Maybe it's 48, I don't remember the year yeah. well anymore. Yeah, 48 and 67, you're right. The Six-Day War. I think um, the, uh, so I'm not sure what to think about 67, but... Right. You know, I think one of the things that people think about, is particularly the 1967 war, um, the Six-Day War, is the vast armies arrayed against Israel. I mean, this tiny little country, and I mean... Every power in the Mideast was was aligned, and Israel just took it to them. So I mean, there's that connection of some kind. There's some. A lot of people will say there there is some supernatural element to this because theoretically, there's no like way the US, they should. The U.S. military. Well, <laughs> well, I'm just saying. Yeah, you know, right. I'm just commenting as sure. that's kind of the the yeah. view that some folks yeah. have on that. You know, uh, like Joe was saying, I heard, uh, it's, this has been a few years ago, but Israel per capita had more atheists than any other country in the world. Um, there has not been any, you know, we haven't heard any, you know, when Netanyahu talks, there may be some, you know, they might color it a little bit as far as a, uh, a faith thing, but it's, it's pretty political, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and all of that. It's the Bible seems to me that there's a point in which they define what a Jew is in the sense of how God sees a Jew, you know, and 
we have been grafted into that. And when you look back in Isaiah and the different portions, I mean, Isaiah 11 right here, it talks about God's not going to save the whole nation. He's going to save a portion of the nation. Mm -hmm. He's got a remnant that he's going to save. So, I mean, the Lord made a covenant with Israel, and he hasn't abandoned them in that sense. He's going to fulfill it um, and satisfy his end of the covenant. And he's with, with genetic Israel. I, I, I think there. I think there's going to be ethnic Jews who come to Christ. I think that's oh, all I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's obvious. It says that. Yes. Yes. So, I. You know, I don't know. I'm not. I don't. Know. Yeah. I, so, so it sounds to me like you're suggesting that I shouldn't look for a visible revival in Israel necessarily. I don't mean to say that because I don't know. Honestly, I didn't no. mean to say that. Well, that's how it that's sounded. a possibility. There'd um, still be a remnant that is faithful to the hmm, Lord. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's incumbent on us as, as, as reformed to, to, not, to not go to a place where there's no consideration that there's a possibility for repentance, you know what I mean? Yeah. So. Right, and, and um, as far as the Jews go, my, my whole <clears throat> viewpoint on that is not that the Jews are too hard-hearted to be saved. <laughs> no way. My, my whole point is that there's no real difference between a Jew and an American and an African. I hear you. In, in, any longer. And, I, and there's, there's lots of lots of people who would vehemently disagree with me on that. Yeah. Uh, I'm pro in fact, I'm probably in the minority on that. A lot of people probably look at the Jews as being still in that chosen of God in a way that the Muslim is not. You know, whereas I would see Jews and Muslims in exactly the same way. I would see there's, there's no difference. There's no difference between a Jew. Uh, and I would even go so far as to say there's no such thing as Judeo-Christianity. It's just Christianity because, because Judaism rejects Christ and Judeo-Christianity <laughs> To death is, even. <laughs> to death, exactly. And they are, they are, you know, they are demonstrably opposed to yeah. each other. You know, if I enter a conversation with someone and they make, start making those references, I'm, I, I ask them, please define what you mean by Jew. Mm -hmm. I need to know what you mean by that. Right. Are you just, you just mean somebody who who's, you know, had, can trace their lineage back to Israel? Okay, then that helps me understand what maybe how we're going well, to talk it's, about it's things. hard too because we do we live in a time where there are people who are not ethnically Jewish who are mm -hmm. Jewish mm -hmm. in yeah. religion yeah you know so it's kind of and the ethnic ones are usually not religious right they're, you know, they're usually atheists <laughs> yeah, like you were right. saying um, yeah it's, it's interesting uh, hey uh, dad one of the things you said in between the two talks was that you, you were you were kind of agreeing with what R.C. was saying at the end of his first talk where he says that we know Jesus wasn't wrong because we don't believe Jesus was wrong. But have, as you as you read as as he was continuing on with his kind of uh, his case for uh, a more immediacy of the prophecies of Christ in the New Testament, did did some of those things that you're bringing up kind of did you feel like he addressed them? Um, well, of course, because I know almost nothing about this. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not hard to address. I mean, I'm sure. I'm going to look into it. I'm yeah. I'm uh, guilty of uh, 
not interested at all in mm. talking with Bertrand Russell type people. Sure. Just, I mean, I, I'm not a good salesperson, and mm. I'm if I tell Spencer about Jesus Christ, and he says, you know, I'm really not a religious person, I'm going, Ron, what about you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just the way I I'm operate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not necessarily, uh, but I would hope that a guy like Les is out there beseeching and begging mm. those to come to Christ, and then and there's some like me that. Um, so, some of this, I, I just uh, mm. I, I'm going to look into it. You know, yeah. I'm going to see what John MacArthur <laughs> says. No, no. I, I mean, I really like what Sproul has to, uh, RC has to say there. I but yeah. I'm I, I don't know. I, I don't know anything. I'm going to look at it. I could write down about three of the passages. He, uh, well, but there's a lot of stuff on eschatology that you can look at. Oh yeah, the the thing that that jumped out at me today, and I've heard, I've seen this video before. I haven't even read the book. Was you talked about the age of the Gentile, but this age of the Jew. You know, I just never thought of it in that in those terms, and that the the age of the Jew ended in seventy A.D. That's that is a remarkable mm -hmm. thing to consider mm -hmm. in in that term in that context. It kind of changes everything for right. me mm -hmm. and how I'm how I'm going to think about it. But I'm like Frank. I'm going to be kind of investigating this a little bit more. But I want to investigate. I want to see the age of the age of the Jews. Mm. I mean, is that unique to RC? I don't think it is. I, I mean, no, it's not. Did you know the reformers must have considered used that? You know, Luther and. and all those guys. So I'm going to look into that mm. for sure. But I think everything he was saying is very compelling, and it's kind of I'm, I'm a guy. I need to hear hearing it again helps me. Yeah. Because there were some things that really stood out for me. Right.